Hi, it's Wednesday morning. I'm going to be doing something this week that's very unusual for me. But since it's Cholomoy, I can't do any work for college. And I can't even do any work to prepare for my um, lecture series next week. So I'm trying to uh, do all my obligations this week for the podcast. And uh, some very good friends of mine uh, asked me to do a podcast, which I originally was going to do next week, uh, the Fragers. But... uh, Something, a concatenation of events made me decide, number one, to do it today, and number two, on the subject of today. Um, so let me explain that. I mentioned a number of weeks ago, I think, I don't know when, uh, about some obscure safer uh, from the 18th century. And I don't know what context I even said it. I don't remember after these podcasts or what I said. And Gideon Miller lives in Houston. Uh, heard it, and uh, the other day, yesterday, I guess, or whatever, I came home, and I saw a box, and I opened up the box, and there was a rare book in it, and uh, Gideon was nice enough, he sent me, <laughs> he, he bought an auction or something, he sent me a copy of the, no, it was an 18th century work, a, a, a safer written in 1743, it's got the old kind of uh, fancy paper, and all the rest of it, of the safer that I made reference to, which was the child's in Kona, and it blew me away, and I wasn't expecting it, and it's a rare safer, I think I mentioned that I saw it once in TA, then it was gone many years ago, which is true, he bought one, and the guy was nice enough to get, to get another copy and send me one, so uh, these are the kind of things they sell in these auctions, now, uh, so therefore, uh, it made me, so first of all, it's very nice of him, and second of all, it made me think, and it happens to be Derek Hagav that I was speaking about this with this farm chatter guy in uh, Lakewood back and forth. He, he ordered like a copy, a knockoff or something like that. We had this conversation, he and I, a week or two ago. So it's just funny that this obscure uh, safer of this extremely interesting person popped into my life. And in addition, I had um, promised the... Uh, Tzipor Frager, Tzipor Shavalsky Frager, who I know forever, uh, and who was my shotgun. She and her husband, Yehuda, they uh, wanted to fix me and my wife up uh, many moons ago. And so, uh, and I knew them beforehand, and this, are, this is a yard side of her father's father, and her father, Rabbi Shavalsky, Rabbi Moshe Shavalsky, old, very good friend of mine. They uh, have a full shlema, and... Uh, he knows ten times more than I know about <laughs> American Jewish rabbinical history. He knows where all the skeletons are buried. Let's put it that way, and uh, Baltimore and elsewhere, and because he lived through it all. Now, uh, so anyway, so she asked me to uh, do something for the uh, talk for her grandfather's yard site, Hillel Shavalsky. We're talking about somebody from long ago. This is from the very few people that they were Shomer Shabbos and lost a job, and they kept, you know how it used to be, long, I think many of you know this, once upon a time in America, long ago, if you really want to keep Shabbos, you got fired every week, <laughs> right? Because he worked until Friday, then when you say, I can't come in on Saturday, he said, fine, you're fired. You know, this is the people who sacrificed for Shabbos. Not many people could withstand that, Nisan, I think we all know this. And so this is the person in whose memory, which is right after Yontav this coming week, it's coming up that this uh, podcast is being sponsored by the Frager family. 
And uh, Derek Hagav, I'd also say that we wish Rafal Frager should have uh, Fuhr Schleiman, good health. He's uh, uh, battling against uh, health challenges. And uh, anyway, I wish the Fragers, wherever they are, they should have good mazel. Uh, and now, without any further ado, since this book came out of nowhere, so I say, you know something, heck with it, I'll do it through Shimshamar uh, Porgo. Um, I don't know when the art, actually, the art says, some other time of you, who cares? And therefore, I'm going to be talking today about a very, very interesting character who's really not known and who should really be a poster boy for Torah Mata, and I mean that in the best sense and not in the worst sense, right? Term Derger's Torah Mata, back in the 18th century. Here's somebody who lived in the late 1600s, early 1700s in Italy. And it's almost like a classic example, sort of an outstanding example of a certain type of rov that used to be and no longer is. And this is Italy, and I've spoken about Italy from time to time. You know, last time I did, I think, Emmanuel Chaibiki or something. And uh, here we have uh, people of a certain sug. So the person we're talking about is Shimshin Marpurgo. Marpurgo is just Italian for Marburg, Marburg. Marburg is a town in Slovenia. That's where the first lady's from, you know, Trump's wife. And uh, uh, Truman's addition was there once upon a time. And so forth. He's... This is what you call northeastern Italy. I don't know if that means anything to you all, because usually they don't know uh, geography, but it's the northeast part of Italy, the area roughly of Venice and the Venetio. So our hero today, Shimshon Marpurio, is what you call a Venetian Jew. The Jews were in Venice. I've, this is not the first time I've spoken about such things. Italy wasn't one country. Italy was like ten countries. There was the Kingdom of Naples and the Papal States and the Grand Duchy of Tuscany and blah, blah, blah. So one of the countries was what they called the Republic of Venice. The city of Venice conquered Aganza Medina, and used to call the Veneto, the Republic of Venice. And some important, small but important Jewish communities were there, as in Venice, as in Padua, as in Verona, and places like that. These are important kahillas of yesteryear. And uh, our hero was born in that uh, general area. He actually was right over the border. I don't want to bore you with too many details, but it's, it borders on the Austrian Empire at that time, the Habsburg Empire. And, uh, you know, the board, and these borders were fought over until World War II. Um, excuse me, until World War I. He was born in, in Gradiska, which is on the Isonzo River. The Isonzo River, there were like 15 battles of the Isonzo in World War I, when the Italians tried to break into the Austrian lines and didn't succeed and were slaughtered. Part of your World War I stuff that I'm sure nobody's interested in. Anyhow, our hero, therefore, comes from that general area, which happened to have small but Malcolm Torah places. It's funny. Okay? So here's a boy that grows up, he's in 1681, he's born, so in the late 1600s, uh, in the Austrian part. So is it Trieste? Maybe you've heard of Trieste? Maybe you've heard of Venice? It's in that general uh, type area, but it's north of it. And uh, so he, you know, came from a Jewish family, to Marburg is a well-known family. And uh, his parents send him off at a very young age to learn. There's, once upon a time, used to be people like that. Now, in his time, most of the Jews in Italy were party animals. They weren't into learning and all that. They were Jewish. They're from, you know what I mean, like that. And uh, uh, But there was a chalik, a small chalik. There were people interested in learning. just happened to be. And he was one of them, Shimshin Marpurgo. And uh, he spent his young years learning with Rabbi Gorizia, again, these places don't mean anything to you, but these are, Gorizia is in the Austrian part near Venice and 
near the Republic of Venice, and believe it or not, the Bear Sheva was there, other people there, but it, it was a Mokhtam Yeshiva, <laughs> uh, once upon a time. These small communities with ghettos that were even smaller, and within these ghettos were a thriving life. It wasn't a ghetto like having America Day, which headquarters of the drugs and the crime. The Jews had ghettos of a different character. And uh, the most likely, the most interesting part was that, uh, you know, some of them had, you know, of course, a shul, all the rest of it. You could have a local rabbi, as I discussed yesterday in South Germany, with five, ten students, something like that, 15 students, and that's your yeshiva. Yeshiva, as they call it at that time. And our hero is a product of that. So we're dealing with a total Italian guy who's gone to life, who's lived in Italy, and whose whole Torah that he gets is from Italian Jewish sources. Most of us never even heard of these guys. Um, they never heard of the towns, the places. Perhaps, perhaps, if you go on a trip of Italy, but I don't think most of the tour guides even ever heard of these people. You have to be, like, really knowledgeable to know these things. But these small communities were thriving in the sense of having uh, centers of Jewish intellectuality. And so our little kid, he's born in 1681. At the age of five or six, his parents send him about 15 miles away to Gorizia, and there to study yeshiva. So here we have the old school, in which you really had a rabbi from the Tomlick Elementary School, and he taught you everything from the bottom up. Taught you olive base, then he taught you how to read, and then once you read, you know, you learned uh, Chumash, and then once you learned Chumash, you learned the, uh, you know, the Tanakh stuff, and then you learned the Mishnahis, and eventually you do the Gemara. So you're learning with a guy from six years old, seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, eleven, twelve years old, and your mom has progressed in that sense. We today have schools with grades and all that business. He had a Rebbe, Menashe Chaifetz, who was a well-known person once upon a time in Italy, and he like, taught him from the bottom up. Once he reached a certain age, I'd say like 13, something like, I don't remember exactly, he went to Venice. Ooh, Venice was uh, already a Malcolm Torah. Now, really, Venice had a Jewish community. As I said before, most of them were party animals. But they had a small chalik of the people who were learners. And he... If he's born in 1681, so we're dealing with the 1690s. In 1690s, the rabbi in Venice, the Rav, the Abbasin, was still one of the uh, Gedoli Hador. You hear what I'm saying? The rabbi in Venice was one of the biggest Talmudic Chacham of that time. I'm talking about the Shmuel Abuab, whose uh, Sefer Dvar Shmuel is fantastic. I'm waiting every day that the, they should make a new edition of it, because it's written in old-fashioned chicken-scratch print. It's a hard-to-read, funny, funny kind of uh, script. That's how they published it. And I'm looking to Zichar and and the other said they're going to come out with a nice edition. It's a fantastic safer. And uh, don't worry, our hero is also going to write a fantastic safer. So what I'm trying to say is here's a 13, 14-year-old boy who, you know, at that age, comes to Venice and learns in yeshiva of well, the biggest tamachachim at that time, one of, one of them. It's funny to think that in Italy and in Venice, of all places, where they have the carnivals and they have the parties and this and that and the other, uh, you'd have such a big person, but Shmuel Abab was a Sephardi, was of that Madrega. And therefore, I'm dealing with somebody who therefore has a very sound Jewish education. And I can't remember if he lost his father young age, possibly, uh, maybe not. But uh, but what he called, he, you know, it grows up like this. Now, money he does not have, as was the case. He's going to come from a rich family, never married a rich girl. So money doesn't have, and that's the only problem for him. Now here's a boy, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, who's learning, away, learning up a storm. But also, you know, as I just said before, if you're not rich, you're not married to rich, so what's the future? So you have no choice but to think of Parnosa. 
Now, a guy like this, in my opinion, had he married a rich girl at a young age or something like that, he would have devoted Kulo learning. Because he liked learning. You understand? It was unnatural. He liked it. I'm talking about Gamar and Postkin, regular Nicholas stuff. Wasn't into Kabbalah. However, he didn't have any money. <laughs> and so, therefore, this is Italy, and the Jews, they're kind of liberal in a certain sense, in terms of college. And so, while he's in Venice, uh, learning up a storm with this uh, Goro, he also sets aside time to acquire privately what you and I would call secular education. I don't know exactly how he did it. Venice had the system of academies and tutors. And I don't know, but he must... I'll tell you why I'm making a point of this. He must have, during his teen years, and I repeat, the guy has no money, he must have uh, uh, been very self-motivated and set aside at the time every day, in addition to the learning. The learning is most of the day. But he set aside a couple hours every day to acquire what you and I would get, a, a, a high school degree, and even a post-high school degree. You see, in other words, to really learn up a storm. So here's a guy, that's, this is very Italian. He's very from, very from, uh, most of today's learning, and I'm talking about Shas and Postkim, for sure. And by the way, he is learning by a guy, who, when I say God Ador, he's one of the big Postkim. The, the, the whole world turned to Shmuel Abuhab, the rabbi of Venice, for Shilas. Okay? He was like that. Uh, and so, you know, you, this is the best kind of learning. First of all, you have like a shear and you learn Gomorashitosis and Rishonim and that kind of thing. And second of all, he got a based in. The based in of Venice in the time of Shmuel Abohab was a based in. And like I say, the whole world turned to them. And so you're a kid growing up, you see how they do a get, you see how they do an Arab, you see how they do the mikvah, you see how they deal with Shilas of Agunas, you deal all kind of questions. By the way, Shmuel Abohab was one of the big anti Shabtai Tzvi people. Uh, he learned that also. And so you have a, a very nice uh, Chinuch, if you understand. And what's the right, what am, what am I thinking of? Shemesh. Think of Shemesh. At, at the, it's, the, it's roughly the equivalent, I'll try to use words you understand. It's roughly the equivalent of being a teenager and learning with Moshe Feinstein and sp sitting by his basin every day. Yeah, something along those lines. Okay? Now, at the same time, like I said before, he did the CLEP test. You know, he, 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 uh, he, he took whatever course he needed to t take at that time to get a secular education. And then... When he's like 18, he moves from Venice to Padua, which is also within the territory of the Venetian Republic. Padua used to be the big headquarters, the big yeshiva, um, that was started in the 1400s, and it was the yeshiva that went for hundreds of years. But by the time he comes there, the yeshiva has seen its better days. <laughs> you understand? There's such a thing called the yeshiva sometimes has better periods and more periods of decline. We see this with yeshivas nowadays. I won't name any names, but you see... <laughs> You know, sometimes you see what they call the golden age, and then they have what they call the uh, copper age, <laughs> the iron age. And uh, so, but he, he goes to, uh, to uh, Padua, so what is the 1890s, and he rolls in college, because, university. Padua, the University of Padua was one of the leading universities in Europe, and it's famous, as I've mentioned on many occasions, that was the only university, or at that time there were two in the world, which a Jew could get accepted as a full student and get a degree. Now, the only degree a Jew's interest is MD, right? When you want to get a degree in philosophy, when you get a degree in history, such thing didn't exist almost. Uh, theology is useless. The, all the Jews' interest in make money, so therefore it was an MD uh, degree. With a, with a few, a very small number, 
getting what you call a law degree, a very uh, limited number. Cecil Roth writes all about this in one of his books. Now, the law students, but a very limited number. Now, uh, so our hero wants to get an MD. Now, in those days, an MD was it required first to get like a PhD because in the screwball curriculum of yesteryear, medicine was a branch of philosophy. And so I saw, it's brought down that, you know, um, we have his degree. And it says, this is a Jewish guy, Hebraist from Gradisco, where he was born, and uh, what do you call it? And he published books on philosophy, meaning this must have been the dissertation. That's what I understand. You know what I'm saying? Must have had to publish some kind of a dissertation. You know, in Italian or Latin or things like that. But here's the weird part to me. He got his MD when he was like 19 years old, maybe, you know, 19 and a half. That's crazy. How did he get an MD at 19? Uh, he must have been a smart cookie. And uh, I still don't understand it exactly. Uh, but he must have really, like I said before, he was a poor boy. And he realized the future, he has to have a parnasa. And he went for medicine. And he must have learned up a storm, cracked the books, you know. And therefore was able to fly through the courses. I, I cannot understand today how a guy gets um, a MD degree from a genuine university. It wasn't, a, wasn't a, well, not one of these online things like the seminaries do, you know. It's a real place. And uh, and he was a doctor, and he did have a medical career, among other things, okay? Uh, but on the other hand, the very interesting person, people don't know about him. On the other hand, he also, and again, I don't know how you do this, he, he also, uh, to, to use modern terminology, while he's in medical school, he also gets a dafiomi. I don't know anybody like that. I've heard of people who have MDs, and then are able to put away time to do a dafiomi that you find in America and elsewhere. You can find that. Uh, it's very impressive. Uh, but, but during the four years of medical school, who's got the time? You're spending all your time, aren't you? You know, cracking the books. And this guy did like a rapid course. If he did it in a year, two years or something like that. Maybe less than two years. Uh, it's incredible. But on the other hand, I can only surmise that he gave Dafyomi for Pernosa to make a few bucks. So here's a poor kid trying to uh, pull himself up by the bootstraps. He loves learning. And uh, in Padua at that time was always a, a colony of Jewish students. I myself was in Padua a number of years ago. I'm sure I mentioned it before. And it's a beautiful city. And the university is like a block away or something like that from the ghetto. Because it was a ghetto. And that's what this guy did. And there was even a, a special dorm house. The Corneliano family had a dorm house. And uh, this is how it goes. Now... Now he's uh, 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 now he's twenty years old. So you might think like this: he's God's gift. You know, every girl wants a guy who's twenty years old. His MD. I don't know why it wasn't the case. He didn't get married till he's thirty-two years old. Isn't that weird? Not till he's thirty-two years old. And so for the next ten years, even though he had the MD, he wasn't able to turn into. He didn't go into full practice. He liked learning, and he spent the next years in. Um, that would put us in the year 1700 to 1710, those years. And he spent those next years, first of all, learning full-time, and also uh, he must have practiced the medicine somehow or other, I don't know how, and uh, living in Padua and trying to make a go of it. But he himself writes in letters. He said, this, this town has seen its better years. The yeshiva ain't what it was, and I have nobody really to talk with in learning. Interesting. You know, in other words, nobody really to talk with and learning. And uh, most of the Jews over here 
are uh, more impressed with the uh, secular degree, and uh, the learning has gone down here in Padua, which has historically been a big yeshiva town since the 1400s, and it's, it ain't what it was. Uh, and I'm kind of you know kind of lonely and bored, which is which is just an interesting thing, and the result is that uh, it's kind of miserable, you know. Even though you think, well, you know, you're Tom Chacham, you have your MD. I mean, what, what what's the problem? I don't know. He wasn't able to turn into something, and uh, instead he got into correspondence with all the big rabbis in Italy, and he wrote back and forth and learning. Because that's who he naturally was. Uh, I might say that the um, atmosphere in uh, in these countries in Italy, including the Venetian areas, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, was one where the Catholic Church made intense efforts to attack Judaism and convert the Jews. And there was this guy, Benatelli, Luigi Benatelli, who was a Catholic priest, and he and lived over there, and he wrote all these books, you know, disproving Judaism, and, you know, trying to carve the Jews to Christianity, and so forth, and uh, he knew these different rabbis, he was friends, actually, with some of the Chashel rabbis, in fact, he says, I know these rabbis, they're just on the wrong derech, they're actually nice people, they have a high character, they just believe they're in the wrong derech, and actually, he's a Catholic, he would say that, and our hero wrote a book to slug him up, you know, it's, uh, I'm dealing with very obscure facts over here. Benatelli wrote a book called La Sedote de Jonathan, the, the, the Arrows of Jonathan. He wrote, like, you know, Reply to the Arrows of Jonathan. So, uh, he, let me put it this way. I would say that one of the things Benatelli and others do is they try to use Kabbalah to prove the truths of Christianity. This is called the Christian Kabbalist. And this is a famous uh, chapter in, in European culture. Uh, you know, in the time of the Ramban, let me put it this way, the missionaries have come with three type of approaches, among others. One is to prove the truth of Christianity from the scriptures, from Tanakh, okay, that's one Mahalach, and therefore the Jews wrote a whole bunch of books, can I get that? Then another Mahalach is, try to prove the truth of Christianity from the Gemara, from Chazal, from the Medrash, you know, Gemara and Midrashim, that was the Bikuch and Ramban and people like that, Okay, and uh, there's a whole tradition of that in the Catholic Church. And again, you have a whole bunch of replies by Jews on that Mahalach. And then the third one that I can think of is you try to prove the truth of Christianity from the Zohar and those kind of uh, writings. Uh, I know it sounds funny, but I mean, this is this way they go. And there arose as a response, you know, a, a certain set of literature, particularly in Italy, trying to respond to that. And our hero was one of the people who wrote, wrote in that. So here's a 23 year old guy. 22, 23-year-old guy, that he's uh, writing against the Christians, it made him very suspicious of Kabbalah. In other words, he knows Kabbalah is a real thing, but but be very careful. Most people shouldn't in, get themselves involved with in it. And he himself doesn't. As a matter of fact, if anything, he says, it's better to be a Maimonidean. Can I use that terminology? Use a Seichel Habari. That's the best basis for your Judaism. Not that there's anything wrong with Kabbalah, but most people who do it screw up. Remember, he lived in the time of the Shabbat and Sabbatianism. So this was a problem raging in Italy and elsewhere, that you have these, first of all, you got the Christians, then you have these uh, Sabbatians, all quoting from the Zohar and from the Kisri Arizal, and who knows what, 
to prove the truth, in this case, not of Christianity, but of Shabtai Tzviism of one form or another. And so this is when they really formed the rabbinical attitude, you know, that you should stay away from Kabbalah. Again, not that the Kabbalah is wrong, but the Kabbalah is of such a nature that you'll screw up. Therefore, better not to get involved with it. Which is what most people would say today, right? You know, now, um, and so he's very much, keep that, I'm saying this for a reason, keep that in mind. And so the point is, we come up with someone who in my mind is very normal, very normal guy. It's not easy to find somebody who's a big time call who's normal. But you'll see when he becomes a rub and he writes the Shalos and Jews, comes across a very normal, middle-of-the-road, mellow personality. Uh, this is, you know, this is a pretty good Madrega. Matter of fact, Rabbi Shavalsky supports follows like that. Now, uh, um, as time goes on, so, you know, what are you going to do for a living? What are you going to do for a living? Now, he would, you know, when he was in Padua, he gave Shiorim, I think he was on the Paisden, but it's, it's not a Parnosa, it's not a future. You know, so where's this going? This is the problem. Where is this going? Now, the thing is that he didn't have good prospects because you either got to be rich or you have to be married to a rich girl or you have to be married to some Russian Sheba's daughter, some rabbi's daughter, something like that. You know what I mean? On the other hand, he clearly had the ability and he was a nice person. People like being around him. He had a nice personality. He grew up with a chip on the shoulder, which he could have had. Uh, and... Uh, so therefore, eventually, like in his late 20s, around the year 1710 or something like that, he finally got a decent offer. Close to the age of 30. When he was around 30 years old, 29. Took a long time. But he got a decent offer. And that was to be on the, a dying on the Basin in Ancona. And he moved there and that's where he spent the rest of his life. Now, most of you don't know where Ancona is. I wanted to go there when I was in Italy, but I wasn't able to. And Kona is a city on the east side of, um, what do you call it, of uh, Italy. Not facing towards uh, the Atlantic Ocean, but facing towards Israel, on the Adriatic Sea. It's across from what we used to call Yugoslavia, Serbia, and those places. Now, listen closely. Italy used to be divided, like I say, into 10 or 15 Medinas. Each in the, an independent, separate country. Italy didn't become a, a one united country until the 1860s. So in the 1700s, when our hero lived, Italy was uh, the southern part, the middle part, and then a whole bunch of countries in the northern part. The southern part was called the Kingdom of Naples. That's the area of the boot. Then the middle part was the Kingdom of the Pope. It was a, a country that the Pope ruled as a dictator. You know what I'm saying? The Pope had his own country, in addition to being the head of the Catholic Church. These called the Papal States. Um, and maybe you've heard about it. And this ran all across the middle of Italy. And uh, the Popes, I'll say it again, they ran the country like a dictator. Now, an absolute monarch. There were Jews living in these Medinas, in the Papal States. There were no Jews living in the Kingdom of Naples, because Naples was ruled by the Spaniards. And Spain had the Inquisition. You know, in other words, the, the law in Spain that no Jews allowed to stay here applied to the King of Naples as well. And even though, if you want to get very technical, after the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, it was taken over by the Austrians, but the Spanish got a better advantage. You don't need to know that. Anyway, Naples, no Jews. But in the middle, the Papal States, 
uh, there were Jews. Look, I'm sure you've heard that there were Jews in Rome all the way through. There used to be a Jeopardy question when I was a kid. What is the longest continual Jewish community? You know, they always said Israel, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, stuff like that. But the answer is Rome. There have been times when there were no Jews in Jerusalem, hundreds of years. But there's never been a time that there were no Jews, there wasn't a Jewish community in Rome, before even Julius Caesar. So all during the time of the Rome, uh, of the popes, there was a Jewish community, but they were always persecuted very heavily. The period I'm talking about is the 1700s, we call the early modern era. During this era, the Catholic Church was at its most disgusting towards the Jews. And uh, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, that's when they were at the cruelest, for a bunch of reasons. And this is when the Jews were reduced to ghettos and all kind of persecutions. You couldn't physically harm them, but you could do everything else. And the government of the popes made sure the Jews lived in an impoverished and degraded status. And so if you go to Italy today, you can go to these small towns here and there that used to be in the Papal States, and you'll see they're very small communities. Sometimes they have shoals that are still left over. Uh, now they're all museums, nobody lives there, uh, these small towns. And uh, they were in the Papal States. And occasionally you could have a Kehillah that had, you know, some Talmud Chacham. But the Catholic Church were Mamzerim during this period, and one of the things they did was destroy all the copies of the Gemara. It was against the law in the Papal States to have a, a Gemara. And you had to, you know, twist like a pretzel to figure some way around that. Uh, and it wasn't easy. So it's not what you think, you understand? Comparatively speaking, by comparison, Venice was much better. Although Venice was also very tough laws against the Jews, but not as bad as in the Papal States. Now, the Papal States ran all the way through the middle of Italy. You notice ran from the, the the left side to the right side, right across, you know, right across, horizontally across Italy. So from the Mediterranean Sea on the one side to the Adriatic on the other side. And on the, the Adriatic is opposite, is a small sea. On one side is Italy, on the opposite side, in those days was the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire. I'm saying this for a reason. So from the point of view of the economics, of the economy, the papal states, you know, they wanted, they needed taxes. They had to raise money. One of the, the main ways of bringing money in is through trade. The way you do trade is you have to have a port city. And then you import and export. So the port city on the Adriatic side was Ancona. A-N-C-O-N-A. C-O-N-A. Uh, which is a Irve and Israel. I mean, I know it sounds funny. There's a long-standing Jewish community there from way back when. And the reason is simple. It's a place of business. You know, it's on the sea. And so it's a port on the sea. So there have always been Jews over there. There's always a Jewish community. Um, maybe I mentioned this before. There was a notorious incident in the 1500s when the Jews in Mancona, uh, how do I explain this? We're dealing with Italy over here. In Italy, there are always four types of Jewish communities. A, B, C, D. Four different types. And there are different laws applying to each of the four types. One type is what you call Italiani Jews, Italian Jews. These are Jews who move from one place to the other. They're Italian. They're not Ashkenaz. They're not Sephardi. They're their own thing, mostly from Rome and the Roman area. Get it? They have their own Nusach, their own, own way. That's one. Then there's Ashkenazic Jews. Jews who moved there from Ashkenaz like in the, in the 12, 1300s, 1400s. People don't notice. Many places in northern Italy particularly were Ashkenazic Jewish communities. Our hero... Shim Shemur Porga was an Ashkenazi Jew. Get it? Now, he, he was Italian. He lived all of his life in Italy. He spoke Italian. 
by these Ashkenazi Jews. Then there's the Sephardic Jews, but the Sephardic Jews come from Spain. So there's two types, A and B. One are what you call Sephardim Tahorim. These are the Jews who ran away from Spain in 1492. And in the case I'm talking about, they either went to Italy, a few of them, or they went to Turkey, the Turkish Empire. Now, these Jews never converted to Christianity. So the laws of the Catholic Church against them are, are the laws towards Jews, which is they live in ghettos, they're subject to discrimination laws, but you don't have to kill them. And then there's the other type of Sephardic Jews, who are Sephardim Tameim, if I can use that terminology. These are the Moranos. Okay, these are the Jews who did not leave in 1492, under whatever circumstances, and and then ran away to Portugal without going through the whole Arichas. These Jews um, were born Christian or descended from Christians. Meaning, in 1497, all those Jews were forced to convert. Uh, over the next couple of centuries, as late as the 1700s. They were still running away and escaping to other places they could live a Jewish life. And some of them ended up in Italy, some of them ended up in Italy, and uh, some of them ended up in the Papal States. Well, the Pope takes it seriously. And so, in the case of Ancona, it's very interesting. There was always a, a, a battle between, uh, what's the right word, they were conflicted. The Pope and his government was conflicted. On the one hand, these Portuguese Jews, as they call them, are very good for the economy, because if they'll settle, for example, in Ancona, they have a lot of contacts with other Sephardic Jews in the Turkish Empire, and they'll be able to do a lot of business, and that means that the port of Ancona will flourish. Ships will come in, ships will go out, a lot of import, a lot of export. It's excellent for the economy. It brings in a lot of revenue. So these guys are formerly uh, Christians who uh, went off the derech, and therefore the Chayv Misa, by the laws of the Catholic Church. And it depends on the Pope. It's famous. This Pope and that Pope said, I will turn a blind eye, and you can live here, I won't bother you, just do business. And then a third Pope turned around and said, like I changed my mind, I'll kill you all. And in the late 15, in the 1550s, I think, one of the Popes did that and burned, all, burned at the stake all these uh, Portuguese Jews. Isn't that terrible? Now, mind you, these Jews were burned. The other Jews in the community were not burned. In other words, this guy I'm burning at the stake with his family because they're born Catholic. Therefore, they're uh, renegades. You know, they're, they're, they're mumrim from the point of view of the Catholic Church. Therefore, the Chayamisa. You, on the other hand, are an Ashkenazic Jew who comes from a family that never converted. And so you're allowed to be Jewish living in a ghetto and subject to all the discrimination laws, but you're allowed to be Jewish. Or you're a Sephardi or Italian and whatever. So with that in mind, you'll understand that Ancona was actually once upon a time an important Jewish community. They had about a thousand Jews, which was a lot in those days. I know it doesn't seem much to us. In Italy, it's always small. But about a thousand Jews, that's uh, two, three hundred families, right? Berich. Uh, in addition to that, it was a, 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 an active port, mostly thanks to these Jews. And so what I'm trying to say is, you come to a community over here, it's a Kehillah. And uh, it's not Kehillah Portuguese Jews, but you have all these other types of Jews over there. I don't remember exactly what the composition of the community was in Ancona in the early 1700s. It could do research and find out. But anyway, it doesn't matter to you. Uh, although it'll make a difference a little bit in our hero's lifetime, I'll explain in a second, I hope. But uh, just imagine, therefore, that you're living in the 1710s, 1720s, 1730s, because he dies in 1740. He wasn't old when he died. Uh, during this time, 
and uh, you have a community, first of all, you know, a thousand people, you know, just think today, you, you have a shul with uh, 200 families, something like that, you know, whatever, something like 250 families. It's not tiny. Uh, second of all, every Shabbos, there are merchants coming from the Turkish Empire. You know, I mean, notice you always have, uh, shall I say, guests. You always have Archim, uh, back and forth, because people from your community go to do trade over there and stay there for business purposes and vice versa. So it's like, you know, if you go to some of these places like tourist spots today in Europe, every week is a different, uh, you know, a kill. I was in Gibraltar, you know, so we were the group that we, that Shabbos. I'm sure a week later they had people from Canada, and a week later people, a, a group from London. You know you know what I mean? So it's a cosmopolitan in that regard. It's hard to get cocked, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a town where Jewish life is uh, small but very active, and hawking must go on crazy there. You know, every Shabbos, you know, like I say, there are guests from uh, Greece and from Turkey and this, and, you know, they, do you know my relative, do you know this person? And I'm sure you're not allowed to talk about business on Shabbos, but Nishtab Shabbos Gerak, they talk all about business. This, this is how life was lived in the time of our ancestors. Now, what's interesting is that the uh, at the time he was brought there, they had a well-known rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Piometta, who doesn't mean anything to you, but, you know, he's in Italian Jewish history, and he had yeshiva. And uh, they had their share of learners. And so our hero comes there, he's in this small, stupid little town of Ancona, he finds uh, people to talk with and learning. And uh, so he liked it, actually. And he settled there and remained there for the rest of his life. Now, he wasn't married. Uh, he wasn't married because he didn't have any money. Uh, you know, he married the rabbi's daughter. Okay? Yosef uh, Piametta. Lehava. Piametta is a, is, is a lehava, you know, it's a you know, flame. Anyway, um, he married the rabbi's daughter. Uh, and they're in love. And then, like, and they have a kid. And the kid dies. And then you have a daughter, and the daughter gets sick. And then the mother dies. Yeah, you know, hard luck story. And then he marries her sister. Okay? And they stay married. Uh, this is not someone who had, uh, you know, a life handed to him with a silver spoon. Uh, had a difficult uh, life. And uh, he had his friends, and he had correspondence. He, he wrote a lot. And he remained there the rest of his life, and when the father-in-law eventually died, they elected him as the Rav. And so when you get him, you get a very interesting guy. It's like, it's like the best of Wayu, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean in a good way. A big Tamil Chacham, and he's an empty. You know what I mean? So you can come to the rabbi with a Shiloh about Kashrus. You can also come to the rabbi with a Shiloh because you have a, bat, a backache. <laughs> right? And he was a good doctor by the standards of medicine at that time. Uh, this is interesting in the context of the coronavirus that we're all going through now, COVID, that uh, he was given a medal by the Pope in, because in 1730 there was a magaif over there. They always had, you know, they didn't, the medicine stunk at that time. So he had constant uh, plagues. And apparently he helped out in the plague. It's always very funny. This is the Catholic Church at its worst. So they had all kinds of laws and xeris against the Jews. And, um, which means as a rabbi, he really had to, you know, dance on eggs and, and mind his P's and Q's. Uh, and one of the laws was that Jewish doctors can only treat Jewish patients. That's a Catholic law. So that, God forbid, you shouldn't have a, 
which was really enforced mainly in the papal states because it's very offensive to them. The Jew is, from the Catholic perspective, from the pure theological Catholic perspective, by their terms, word it's the era. And so forth. A Jew is supposed to be degraded. A Jew is supposed to be uh, nidrakite, mushpal ad ha'ofer. And, um, and then they're allowed to live. See, because you rejected Yashket, therefore you live a very bad existence. That's the classic old-fashioned you know, Vatican Catholic mentality. That the Jew has physical safety, but they have to live a degraded existence, and, and their lifestyle should re- reflect this degraded status. And people say, why did Jews live so bad? See what happened to them for rejecting Yashka? That's, that's the classic Catholic attitude. And uh, on the other hand, so therefore, it can't be a situation where I'm a guy and I go to a Jewish doctor, because first of all, he'll make money and I won't. And second of all, it's like he's superior to me. His medical knowledge is superior to me. It's offensive to the Catholics. So if you're a Jewish doctor, you can practice among Jews. Okay, no problem with that. And ordinarily, a guy like our hero would never mess with that because he was too smart to mess with the rules of the Catholic Church. It's got to really come down hard on you. You know, you lived under them. You just had to learn what it takes. This is the old days. The Jews had to learn what it takes to survive. That's all. Um, but it was a plague. Now, what's, uh, and, and there's a cardinal there, you know, the bishop, who uh, got sick. And others, and after a certain point, the local Italian doctors weren't that weren't that great, and they heard the Jewish guy, the rabbi, is very good, and so the heck with Catholic doctrine, they all went to him. <laughs> you know, when push comes to shove, he throws the theology out there. When you go for the best medicine, and uh, and I'm sure the bishop or the cardinal must have given a hetter, you know, what I mean? a special hetter for plague. Did go to the Jewish doctor, and he was considered very good. He saved a lot of people. Now, to me, this is just very interesting. And I'll tell you why it's no gay to us today. How did he say, it's a cholera epidemic, I think it was. Typhus, cholera. I'm going to ask you the following question. How did you deal with typhus and cholera in the 18th century? The answer is the same way, it's fascinating, the same way we deal with the COVID today. They did not have a cure. In the 1700s, there was no serum or vaccine or anything like that for the cholera and the typhus. There is today, I understand, but not then. And so, it's fascinating what do you do with something that there's no medicine for? Well, guess what? The answer has to be, you're going to live. Masks, social distancing, frequent hand washing, stay away from crowds, blah, 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 all the stuff we hear now. Because these are the common sense things that you do when you're dealing with a situation that you can't cure, so at least you try to prevent the spread. And if somebody has it, you know, you try to, uh, you know, give them healthy food, and give them air. I don't know what they, you know, just common sense stuff. So this is what an MD could do back in those days. So if he went to the, if the bishop went to him or somebody like that, some Catholic, he'd probably say, like, yeah, put on a mask, don't go, go, don't go near anybody, don't go to church, don't go to a chasana, and so on and so forth. And if it worked, people say, yes, wow, he's a fantastic uh, a doctor. And he got a medal from the Pope, which is unusual, for uh, doing good work in the uh, in the plague. Uh, by the way, I want to tell you something. The cardinal whom he helped, who he saved, later on became a pope, the Benedict XIV, and he's the one who later issued a papal decree because in 1756 there was a, uh, what do you call it, a blood libel case in uh, Yampol, where the Nodibihudu was a rabbi for a while, 
It was a famous blood libel case, and uh, they want to kill the Jews for, you know, for Alila's Dom. You know, did they kill a kid for the blood and all that, all the baloney? And this Pope issued a decree in which he said it's not true. He says, I'm the Pope, and I'm telling you, the Jews are disgusting, they're low-life, they're animals, they're mamzer, and so on and so forth, and they reject the Yashke. However, they do not kill people and use the blood for masses. That part is not true. So by the Jewish uh, point of view, this was great. And, you know, it stands to, re- I don't know, but it stands to reason, Levi Unruly, that, uh, you know, he said like this, a Jewish guy saved my life. A Jewish guy saved my life. A rabbi, too. A rabbi. So, uh, this is who our hero was, and he, he came from a very normal kind of attitude. Now, uh, but I don't think he had great health himself. I know, as I said, you know, he had a kid that died, and then another one. Uh, at the end, from his second marriage, he had one son who, who survived him. And eventually, uh, Magefo took him, okay, which, which, which we can totally understand. Unfortunately, now, even people who practice all the social distancing, it can hit him for who knows what. And, uh, no, no, I said it wrong. He had a heart attack. That's it. That's how it goes. Because uh, it was unexpected. So that could happen to anybody. His son writes in the Hakdama to this book that Gideon gave me, that it was the first day of Pesach, he went home and everything was great, and then he just keeled over. So to me, it sounds like a heart attack. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a, you know, a, what do you call it, the aneurysm of Pesach. Obviously, I mean, how would somebody know? But, um, you know, uh, he, he, that's what happened to him. Now, that, that's who he was. The son, his son who survived him, proceeded to make the father famous. Because the son, three years later, after the death of the father in 1743, he collected all the Shalos and Shubas, or many of them, and put them out in two volumes, called Shalos and Shubas Shemesh Tzedakah. Here, when it was published, the circuit was very popular for a while, showed he was real gone. You understand? And I mean it in the best sense of the word, because he got Shalos from all over the place, and his answers are very logical, and very normal, and very Svardic, and mellow. You understand? Very mellow. And um, they're actually uh, really cool, and he's a very good writer, because the rabbis in Italy, were, you know, first learned they've written, diktuk, and that kind of thing, and Melitza, you know, rhetoric. And he's a classic person of that genre. Plus, he also was a poet. You know, if you're a 1700s Italian rabbi, you got to be a poet also, because when people die or are born, you write poetry and all this kind of business. Uh, by the way, his rabbi, the first one who taught him was Menashe Chefetz. Who's Menashe Chefetz? Oh no, you know, he's some Hush rabbi in Italy. He was important enough that the Ramchal wrote a, 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 a poem when he died. almost You can get online. Live with the kudos, you know. Uh, and uh, people used to write uh, uh, poems when you get married. This is this is who our hero is. Now, and, and uh, you know, in the Haskamas and the Sefer, a lot of poetry. And not great poetry, but, you know, it's a po- poetry. Now, he published on Dal Chalki Shulchanach. I mean, you know, the, the Ebenezer, the whole business. And uh, it's very, and it's a nice, uh, 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 it's a nice book. Like I say, thanks to Gideon. And I have it in front of me. And uh, the paper is Givaldic. And in the front is a very nice uh, uh, picture of, of David chopping off the head of Goliath. Pretty bloody looking, you know, as used to be in these old rabbinic uh, uh, texts. Now, Lamaisa. Uh, he had an all kind of shadows. Now, um, 
it's not so well known. I myself never heard of this guy until, I don't know, a long time ago. I mean, I was young when I read the Freehoff book from the, from the Reform Rabbi, Treasury of Responsa, in which he translated and dumbed down about 50 uh, responsa from different people. You know, one from Rashi, one from the Rajma, one from the Behuda, one from the, you know, Kassam uh, Silver, that kind of thing. And one of them was in Shimshamar Porgo, which actually a very famous teshuva of his. And uh, that alerted me to who he was. And I always followed him off and on over the years. Um, he didn't get a lot of play. Uh, but in his day, is there. And he is quoted in the in, in, in the postcom. You understand? Now, um, a number of years ago, I got the book Theology and the Responsa. And there, uh, it's the, he did a wonderful digest of some of his uh, uh, chubas. And I want to read him for you. Because... Um, Let's put it this way. I think you'll get an idea of the person I think he was. And so I'll read you from the Theology and the Responsa. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, this in English. Here we go. Since in the Middle Ages there was a debate whether or not you put on tefillin on Cholomoid. I'm doing this podcast on Cholomoid when it's always a machlokis. You wear tefillin or you don't wear tefillin. Uh, the Zohar is very strict against wearing, uh, um, wearing them. And in treating Cholmoid as like a regular weekday, but the Ashkenazi practice is to wear tefillin on Cholmoid. And so the question addressed to Morpurgo, Rabbi Morpurgo, was um, whether an Ashkenazi shul is allowed to depart from the Ashkenazi custom in order to follow the Zohar. There is articles in this by Professor Katz and others on tefillin on Cholmoid, which is a fascinating topic, but it's very large. I can't go into it now. Uh, you get it from Jacob Katz's books. Uh... You know, there are different men hugging about tefillin. I think you know that. And there still are today. Well, in those parts of Europe, let me put it this way. This fine nobody wore tefillin. So if you live in the Turkish Empire, no problem. Nobody wears tefillin. On the other hand, if you live in Germany, no problem. Everybody wears tefillin. No problem. Get it? Problem was places like Italy, which in the middle, there you always had a lot of tsaras. I think I mentioned this when we did Chayriki, because he was, who was a contemporary of our hero, and he led the war against wearing tefillin. He wrote the book Tefillin to Marialma, that, that the Chalmoyed is the tefillin of a Rabbani Shalom, therefore you shouldn't wear tefillin. But having said that, the normal, regular way of an Ashkenaz is to wear tefillin. Okay? And now, it must have been under the uh, propaganda of Chai Ricky that, you know, they started saying, oh, you're doing something wrong, and the Zohar says, if you wear t- and the Zohar says, if one wears tefillin Chalmoyed, their children will die, and all kind of terrible things like that. And uh, so, People don't know what to do. So one of the people they wrote to was uh, Shimshim Purgo in Ancona, who had his reputation. And he basically says, no, keep up the Ashkenazi custom. He says he himself is of Ashkenazi stock, and he doesn't wear Tfilin Cholomoid since he serves in a shul where they're not worn on that day. In other words, he probably had a, a, a Sephardi shul or something. Like, I don't know what the community was over there, but they didn't do so. But he never departs from the Ashkenazi custom in the privacy of his home. So look what a normal guy he was. Not going to make a machlekes, and not going to cause any waves. When he gets home, you know, then he puts on the film to be to the, 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 the Minigashkanas. I have a student of mine who lives in Israel. <laughs> I asked him. He's a real from guy. On the other hand, he's a Yaki by background. So, uh, on the other hand, in Israel, nobody wears the film. They follow the grow. On the other hand, he is a Yaki. So I said, what do you do? So he told me, he says, you know, and surely he doesn't wear tefillin. He goes up, he puts them on for five minutes, says a shema, whatever, uh, to Yotze the Yakishness. So that's what our hero uh, did. Although he said we didn't do it, could make a machlokis in the shul. And uh, 
As for the views of Shimon Yochai, the author of Zohar, he quotes the famous Tshuvas of Marshal, in which he says, we don't follow the Zohar, and we don't depart from Minig Ashkenaz. Uh, Tshuvas Marshal, well, I spoke about it over here, I'm sure, when I did the Marshal. It's one of the classics. Marshal in Poland, so like this, even if Shimon Yochai would walk in this room, we wouldn't listen to her. That's why it's a classic defense in Minig Ashkenaz. And Marpurgo adds, I'm reading from the text, even though he does know Kabbalah, so look at that, you know, he's some Nigla guy, he has profound respect for the Mekabolim, but they should carry out the practices based on Kabbalah in the privacy of their homes and not flaunt themselves by altering established customs. So that's a very normal way. If you hold personally from some Kabbalistic custom, but you want to change Dominican, your Kahila, and remember in Italy they're small Kahilas, you know, don't do that. Carry out your Kabbalah stuff in the house, okay? And he quotes the Radbaz about the scribe, the sofer, who altered the Torah scrolls to accord with the Kabbalah. And, you know, this was disapproved of. And it depended a lengthy decision of other Italian rabbis who agree with Morpurgo. So, um, if you're interested, whatever it is, this is an Archaim number four. Now, uh, here's another one from Trieste in 1722. <laughs> and again, it's very, um, it's this time of the year. It's the old question of Machnisi Rachim. Remember that question? Should you say in the Slichos, you, should you talk to angels? Machnisi Rachim, Machnisu, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, the very, very Maimonidean sensibility of math and science is you're not supposed to pray to angels. I get it. On the other hand, it's always been out there. So should you freak out over it? Two scholars in Trieste debated whether the prayer should be abolished. One suggests that it's offensive to pray to Malachim, the other one seeing no harm in it. Okay? Now, um, Morpurgo states, both views can supply, I told you, he's a normal, mellow guy. Both views can supply, find support among the early authorities. It's no big deal. As long as we believe that all power is in God's hands, what harm can there be in asking the Malachim to intercede for us? Which means, chill out, guys. You know, Don't, don't make a machlikis in the community. Here's a communal robe. The number one problem is machlikis. All these other things are not as important. You want to dive into an angel. You don't want to dive into an angel. It's not, not a great deal. You don't believe in the angel. You believe in God. More Purga remarks in the name of Shmuel Abuha uh, that even though it says in the Shulchan Aruch, now we don't have this anymore, but in the old Shulchan Aruch, it used to say, they change, you know, they uh, censor it. In the old Shulchan Aruch, it says, by the Kaparis, is a Minik Shtus. That's the title uh, on Kaparis. It's a Minik Shtus. But the Shmuel Abuha said, that's not where Yosef Kara wrote, the printer wrote that. You see? And uh, same way, he says, Hachnis Rachman is an old Minik Ashkenaz. And be very careful in criticizing it. So once again, you find the idea. Don't rock the boat. Don't make machlokas. You don't want to say it? Don't say it. Don't cause somebody else not to say it. You follow? You know, chill out. And uh, for all that, he has the motives of those who protest are worthy because it seems like a, you're worshiping angels. In other words, I hear the other side, but don't make a fighting show. Okay? And he says, I've been a Talmud Chacham, a student of Torah all my life, and I never once question the customs of the Gedolim early age. I'm an Ashkenazi too. If this is if this is what our our our, our uh, you know our Bubbies and Zadies did, if this is our ancestors, so leave it alone. In matters higher than nature, he's content to be one who knows that he does not know. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Now I can read it in Hebrew, but it's, it's easier in English. This is what I mean. Now again, another question, and this one is is very famous in the uh, in the history literature. Okay? And uh, just for a moment of background, uh, our hero was Italian Jew. And by the way, if you see a picture of him, there is a painting of him. You can go online. Samson Morpurgo. You go online. He was a clean-shaven. 
Matter of fact, he looks, he looks a little bit like uh, Spinoza. He's got longish hair and um, long black hair. You know, not very long. Uh, but, you know, he's not, he's going on the triple zero, you know. He's got long black hair and he's clean shaven. Which means it is an Italian Jew. It's a classic example of what I'm talking about. That in Italy, they had different types of rabbis. And many of them were highly Italianized. But they were super from and big time, and they knew gunshots and shulchan Ark and all that kind of stuff in their postkim, and it doesn't fit the East European model of what a big rabbi is supposed to look like. Sometimes people see pictures of a who is it? Uh, uh, what's the name? Ramami Pano and others like shocked. You know what I'm saying? Italy is a different parsha. You know what I'm saying? Just get used to it. Italy's a different parsha, and so he is an Italian Jew. Now listen very closely. Italian Jews could only make money by being merchants. Um, sometimes you had these fairly successful uh, communities in which you had successful merchants. What does it mean to be a successful merchant? I'm Italian, but for business I go to uh, the Turkish Empire, I go to North Africa, I go to other countries for business purposes. Nothing wrong with that. It's for the import-export. I bring my stuff in, they bring stuff, stuff out, and so... I'm trying to tell you what's called Mediterranean Jewish culture. And the Mediterranean Jewish culture is one in which Jews are always on the high seas and doing trade. And that means A is living by B for a half a year or something like that, and vice versa. So like I told you before, if you came to Ancona, you'd see Italian Jews. No, you'd also see Jews on Shabbos with a turban. This guy is a Greek Jew from the Turkish Empire, and he's here for business for a week or two, you know, buying and selling, uh, I don't know, uh, food or... Uh, uh, silk, or you know, whatever the product is, spices, and then he's going to go back. So he's dressed different than others, but the Italians understand it's a foreign merchant coming here for business purposes, not living here, um, and the other way around also. So you could have here, let me, let me just fix this for a second. I hope I switched this right. What was I saying? The uh, well, once you understand this. That in the 1600s and the 1700s, uh, in this Mediterranean Jewish culture, which is a fascinating subject, uh, you therefore had um, Jews living for a while in communities who didn't look like others. So as I said before, uh, so for example, you know, you can have a Hasidic guy move to a place where there's nobody else, so you're just here in business, to give you an example, uh, nowadays. But in those days... Imagine the following. Is the Italian Jew, you might be, well, perhaps, maybe I shouldn't use the word modern Orthodox. I don't know if that's the exact correct word for the 18th century, but nevertheless, you have a modern Orthodox uh, Jew who is Orthodox, but he dresses more modern. Um, that's exactly what you had over there. And so throughout the port cities in the Mediterranean, you sometimes had a few and sometimes more than a few like colonies or groups of these Italian Jewish merchants who are there locally for business, they dress European. They don't dress Arabic. See, Jews living in the Arab countries, they dress like the Arabs. You understand? Like the Turks. Uh, you know, with Mediterranean garb, like with a skirt and a fez and who knows what. Like you see these pictures of Sephardic rabbis and whatever. But next to him, here's a guy who's a firm guy, uh, by shaven. Um, now, not with a razor, but he's shaving. Uh, freak him out. He's got a three-cornered hat, like a European would at that time. Freaks out the locals. Uh, 
it's a little bit like, it's not the same thing, it's a little bit like you have today in Israel. Uh, this is funny, and you know what I'm talking about. American Bachram, who are in Israel, especially first, second year guys, but even more. So, the Israeli uh, frumis, uh, no baseball, no football. Uh, Kador is like Osir. It's like, uh, you know, Hellenism or something like that, right? You know, that's that's not in the in the Haredi culture of Israel. But they're aware that American Bachram are different, and although the Israelis view it as like a stickle weird, but they you know American guys get together on Friday afternoons or Saturday nights or whatever it is to play football, to play basketball, this and that and the other. And so basically the idea is like this, Ha'alon v'ha'alahu. Americans are different, and you know, they're all a little more modern and a little bit less from perhaps from the Israeli perspective. I don't know how they do it, but they don't read them out of the thing. They consider Yeshiva Bacharim, and uh, it's just American Mishagas. Correct? I think you know what I'm talking about. So similarly, if you were a uh, Turkish Jew in Istanbul, Izmir, uh, Aleppo, uh, you know, those kind of, uh, Beirut, uh, Alexandria, uh, Tunisia, uh, what do you call it, Morocco, you know, in, in, uh, in those port cities over there, you'd see in the Jewish community, most people dress like you, Sephardic style, Turkish style, Arabic style. But there will be some that will dress like the Westerners. And sometimes totally Western. But you know, there's those weird European Jews, especially Italian. The weird Italian Jews. And, you know, life is always funny. This guy possibly might be a Tamakokam. He don't look like one, but he might be. So then you say, well, Italians are just different, you know? Just different. And one of the big markers was shaving or not shaving. Uh, shaving or not shaving. Now, um, it's complicated because Livorno, which was another port city in Italy, is on the other side, they were the most successful and rich Jewish community, Portuguese Jews. And they were very westernized. And they were so successful in business that they established small colonies of their own in all these North African and, uh, what do you call it, uh, Middle Eastern ports, like I just was talking about. And they were of such economic standing that they got the local Arab authorities and the local Muslim authorities to give them special status. The journey, they used to be called. And so, for example, I'm just, this is interesting. Uh, let's say you live in Tunis or in um, Tripoli or in uh, Algiers or in, uh, you know, Tangiers, one of those um, port cities, Alexandria. So there's two types of Jews. One of the local Jews, that the Muslims can put all the gazeras on them, and they did. Uh, but then you got these Italian Jews from Livorno who are here, and they're treated uh, much better. <laughs> you get it? They have a lot less restrictions, and they live in a better neighborhood, and they have their own shul. It's kind of funny. So I'm just telling you, this dissonance was just part of the 1600s and 1700s. It's an interesting parsha. So in our case... Shinshamor Porga was a rabbi Ancona, and he was a Posik. And, uh, and a lot of the Jews, Italian Jews in the Turkish ports, like Salonika, knew him. He had a brother, actually, who was a merchant and lived, David, in, in Salonika for a while. And so, for some reason, at a certain point, it like ticked off the local rabbanim, Chachamim in Salonika, which was a very important Jewish community. They're Sephardic. In the Sephardic, in the uh, Muslim world, everybody's a beard. 
And from Kabbalistic perspective, it's also the shave. You know, like Lubavitchers and all that. It's also the shave from Kabbalistic perspective. Not from a Nigla perspective. The only problem you have a Nigla perspective is you can't do with a tar, with a razor. You know, and some other things like that. But uh, that's strictly a halachic question. The, you know, as opposed to scissors, as you'll see in a second. But from uh, the point of view that, you know, each one represents, uh, you know, spiritual things, you're not allowed to shave. The, uh, these Western Jews, these Italian Jews, don't know from that. Like I told you, our hero himself was clean-shaven. So, uh, it was an MD. So, you know, how do you work all that out? How, how, how do you work that out? So, there's a very famous case. I saw it brought down by Freehoff many, many years ago. And now in this text also, uh, this is really cool. Uh, another, I'm going to read the text. Another question on local custom and the Kabbalah was addressed to Morpurgo from the Italian Jews who lived in Salonika. Now, Salonika is in the Turkish Empire. These, which is not that far, I mean, it's not close, but not far away from Ancona. These Jews followed the local general Italian custom of not wearing a beard, even though Kabbalah says that a beard should be worn. The Turkish Jews, led by the Rabbanim of Salonika, threatened to expel the Italians from the community unless they let their beards grow. So for some reason, at this point in the 1720s, the, the, the local Sephardic Jews said, the heck with this, you know, you have to grow a beard. Now, the Italian Jews, therefore, wrote to their rov, you know what I'm saying? Those I'm American, I'm writing to Rosh Hashanah. I'm Italian, I'm writing to Shemshu Marpurgo. Uh, and Marpurgo, in dealing with this question, remarks that he wishes at the same time to consider speaking ironically the following question. Can somebody go to heaven if he's unfamiliar with the Kabbalah? <laughs> That's how he writes rhetorically. Meaning, is a Kabbalistic minhug. It's not a din, okay? So, the Turkish Jews, the, the Chacham and Salonika, is that you have to follow the Zohar. If not, you're a bad person. Really? Is that true? Suppose I never heard of Kabbalah. Suppose I never heard of it, okay? Uh, can a person go to heaven if he's unfamiliar with the Kabbalah? Morpurgo demonstrates that there's no legal objection, meaning halachic, to a Jew being clean-shaven. I repeat, if you don't do it with a razor. He appeals to the Turkish Jews to be more tolerant. On the general question of practices based on Kabbalah, he's insistent that no one can be blamed for being not for being ignorant of Kabbalah. You're not chayiv to know that stuff. On the contrary, the real danger to faith lies in the study of Kabbalah by the immature. Ah, as I told you before, this is the kufa he grows up in. It's a shabtai tzvi. As people screw up Kabbalistic things, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of trouble comes from that. You understand? Stick with nigla, you be normal. He quotes from the chubas. Of earlier people, the what do you call them? What's his name? Chavis Yoyer and the Marl Bach. How can anyone suggest that the Rabbanu Shalom will not let somebody into heaven, a good from Jew, simply because he follows Nigla and not the Kabbalah? According to regular Jewish teaching, even Goyim, you know, Hasidim and get a a Chelik Olam Haba. Kalvachomer, a Jew who's a Shomer Mitzvah, just didn't know Kabbalah. Some of the greatest Jews in the past who spent their whole life in Torah and Mitzvahs didn't know any Kabbalah. Are you going to suggest? that they're going to be condemned uh, for being modest enough not to explore areas that are too marvelous for them. So it's like I said before, and incidentally, in this chuba, which is very long, he says to the Rabbanim in Salonika, listen, let it go. There's a lot of things out there that are dinim, and they're not practiced anymore. It's very fascinating, you know, and uh, and in order to avoid machlokas, it's better like, you know, Pretend like you don't see or something like that. And uh, I'll give I mean, he doesn't use this example 
but I'll give you. I, 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 and he says that we rabbonim in communities, like parents, sometimes you have to know when to hold them, when to fold them, when to, shall I say, not see things and when to see things. And it's it's an art form, and that's what we call das Torah. And that you have to leave to the local rov in the local basin, and you guys are pushing it too far. Um, uh, how would I put it in American terms? Um, and by the way, he says over there, a lot of people don't wear tzitzis. You see? Uh, you know, and, 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 and we don't go shoot them. Uh, I mean, a four-cornered garments. It's, just interesting. It's, a, it's brought down by the historians. That's the one two of his brought down by the historians as a, a, a reflection of social reality in that time. People were from, but they didn't keep everything. I mean, that's the point. Uh, I remember leather shoes also when you're Kipper, or at least, like the Shulchan Aruch says, you can wear them in some places, not others. Uh, you know, one example that comes to my mind in America today, really, really, you're not supposed to laugh. It says in Shulchan Aruch, also Lamali Schok Bolam or something like that. Uh, you know, in the Hilchus Tishabo. Who enforces that? Do they say nobody can be a comedian, can't have a, uh, um, a singing fest? You know, uh, I mean, tell kids you're not allowed to smile, right? So people do, you just, you know, you, you like ignore it, so to speak. It's a very interesting too. I'm not doing justice to it, but I'll be here for four hours if I go into it uh, properly. He has another tshuva, again mentioning over here, uh, which is not well known about hunting, where he's against hunting. Now everybody knows about the famous tshuva of the Nerd Behuda against hunting. I'm talking about hunting for sport. Hunting for sport, right? So obviously you had rich Italian Jews, and in Italy hunting is like a big deal, and they want to go hunting. Not for food, you know, uh, where you catch an animal with a, 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 a net or something like that, but hunting just for heck with, like bird hunting. And we saw, the interview has a famous thing, more poor guys responsible on the subject from the year 1735, uh, 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 which, is, which is kind of interesting, you know, this in the other day in number 18. And here he quotes the Rambam that the reason for all the laws about the, the knife has to be sharp is to avoid Tsar Balachayim. Well, if the Jewish religion is against Tzar Chaim, what greater pain can there be to a bird than to be filled full of lead? And even if we're supposed to, you know, even people you're supposed to kill us at Berla Misi Yafa. Kalvachomer, it's innocent animals, and for no purpose, just for sport. According to the Gemara, it's a biblical prohibition. It's a derisive Tzar Chaim. And he talks about the famous case of Yehud Nasi. And even if you taina that the birds don't feel any pain when they're shot, which is, he says, dubious, they ought to consider the indignities imposed on God's creatures and the prohibition of, like, Baltashkis. Isn't that just an interesting perspective, right? And, you know, the Gemara always con- uh, uh, condemns the circuses of the Romans because they just tortured the animals for fun. And uh, he even says from the Kabbalistic perspective, Bishlema, you know, from the Kabbalistic perspective, if you shecht an animal, eat it for a dvar mitzvah, so you're the animal. You just shoot it, you're not doing anything over here. Um, that's really uh, cute. And finally, um, I'll read you the last one that's brought down over here. Just give you an idea of what a middle of the road a normal person was. Um, in another chuvo in Yerodea, he deals with the old question, how far the basin should be in terms of being lenient with offenders out of fear that a strict attitude might tempt them to leave the Jewish fold. So here we have the limits of autonomy. The use of autonomous coercive communities. And theoretically, the Jewish community can punish the heck out of you and even kill you in some countries uh, in the course of Jewish history. But certainly they could 
yeah, yeah, imprison you, fine you, torture you, whip you, things like that. But should you? Uh, because it could happen, if you don't play it right, that the Jew that you're about to torture, so I guess, the heck with it, I'm going to convert, and I'll become a Malshan and hurt the Jewish community. I think I mentioned to you once, the Marm Lublin has a famous chew, but he says, nowadays you do with a, with a mummer or Malshan, just bump them off. Because if you go through the regular thing of punishing them, they'll, it'll turn out bad. Uh, so in this case, there was a case in Venice, and there was some loose woman with four kids. So I assume she had four kids by four different men. It's almost certain that if the Jewish courts attempt to punish her and proclaim her immoral life, she'll leave Judaism and take the kids with her. So, um, or maybe maybe they were her regular kids. Should the court nonetheless place her under the ban or not? And he says, I don't know what to answer you because it all depends on the local situation, which is such a true story, right? On the one hand, it's essential for the basin to take steps in order to prevent the rot from spreading. On the other hand, she might leave and take the kids and become Goyim. Uh, and, you know, basically he says, at the end of the day, you you know, uh, there's no way to give a chuva on that. The local basin has to, is the only one who knows the Matthias, which is 100% true. So, these and many, many others of these type are in these two volumes. Uh, a lot of them are very solid. Shilas, he has a gun of questions. He has all kinds of questions over there. But, uh, you see, here's a person who, like I say, really, without being funny about it, was a, was a, was a personification of Taramata. Right? Because on the one hand, he was a successful physician. On the other hand, you see, Ezekiel by him was a Torah without question. And, um, you know, he, if he was happy, to the degree he was happy, he was happy giving shiurim and paskin cases and things like that. It's very interesting that he was involved in two of the controversies in the early 1700s um, on the firm side. But in one case, the firm side was easy to ascertain, the other one it wasn't. The first one was the story of the Chemechayun which I think I talked about when I did the Chacham Tzvi. He's one of the Sabatian-type guys who claimed to be a big Makobo, and um, and he had a lot of following. He knew how to kiss up to the richie riches of the Spartan. He was like an expert in that. And they sided with him and said, said he's a from guy, he's a tzaddik, he's a navi, and all the rest of it. And the Rabbanim like declared war on him, and he wanted to get the Rabbanim sunk. And our hero was one of those who was friends with the Joe McCarthy of that time. That was Moshe Chagiz, one of the big Sephardi rabbis who lived for a while in Italy. That's where he met our hero, and they became very good friends. There's all these letters back and forth between them. They became very good friends. And eventually, Moshe Chagiz, a big Sephardi rabbi, moved to Amsterdam, and he became there the number one investigator, the FBI against the Sabbateans. You understand? He's the one. He's like the. He knew Yaakov Emden, and Yaakov Emden picked up where he left off. Even though Yaakov Emden didn't think much of Moshe Chagiz. But our hero did, and um, therefore, when he said that this guy Nehemi Chayun, the phony, is moving to Italy, uh, and you have to uh, fight against him, otherwise people think he's the real thing. So he played a very important role in that, uh, together with uh, what's called the Irgasi and the Shemramunim and others. That's for those who want to get into little details in history. Uh, the other one is much more complex. The other big controversy happened in 1730 when I hear was already a well-known rabbi in Ancona, you know, Chashua Rov. And that has to do with the Ramchal, the controversy. Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who came very close to being put in Cherem by the rabbis of his generation because he said that he's getting nevuas or something like that. I mean, it was always like something like that. He messaged it from heaven. And uh, now the funny part is like this. Uh, our hero, Shem Shemar Purgo, was a personal friend of the Ramchal's family. 
he was at the parents' wedding. He actually has a poem that he wrote for the chasana of the of the uh, parents of Moshe Chaim Lutzato. It's very like those are the years uh, Lutzato was born in seventeen oh seven. Our hero was living in in Padua um, from seventeen hundred to seventeen ten, something like that. He was there. It's very very likely that he was um, at the bris. I think, as best I can tell, this is a very very complicated. Parsha, and there's only a few people that understand this. It's very complicated. But I think that, that the parents of Lutzato actually were one of the few people that like support him financially when he was alone before he got a job. Maybe he learned with the father, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a, very interesting. And he knew Moshe Chaim Lutzato from an early age, even though he moved away when the Ramchal was like three and he never returned. And so they knew each other from correspondence and their letters from the time the Ramchal was a little boy, and he knew that he's a very gifted person, but not today, Kach, that, you know, he's already, like, uh, getting uh, messages from upstairs. And uh, uh, what happened was Ramosha Chagiz, who was the one who led the charge against the other Sabatian guy, became convinced, as part of the Ramchal story, that the Ramchal is a phony, and a Shabtai Tzvinik, and all the rest of it, and he's starting a cult, and he's a very dangerous person, and uh, Yaakov Emden also felt that way. He, he, he has an old chapter about Ramchal in his book on heresy, you know, Halutzato in the Torah's Kanos. And one of the things they did was they got our hero involved in it as the Rav of Ancona. And, you know, it's very complicated because in the classic collection of the documents, which is published by Professor Ginsburg in the 1920s or 30s, Igris Ramchal, uh, you know, you see things from Shishim Marpurgo, it's like anti-Ramchal. Uh, on, the other hand, uh, on the other hand, there are letters that have not been published, or only published recently, where it's not exactly clear over there. And if you put them all together, and people have done this, these are for professional historians. What I'm talking about is for a lecture now, an academic lecture, not for you guys. Uh, you see, once again, very normal, very middle of the road, which is, look, this is Kabbalah stuff, don't even put anybody in harem. Don't even bring this to the attention of the public. They won't understand what's going on. Let's just get this guy, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, not to publish and talk about Kabbalah in public. And Adraba, move to Eretz Yisrael, be a couple over there, get married, you know, be a regular guy, and work out of here, which is Ramchal eventually did. You know, he had to flee Italy, not because of our hero. They moved to Amsterdam, and he had a very hard time, and all that. And eventually, as you know, he got he moved to Israel, and, they, and then he died right away over there. Uh, if you take the trouble to read it, and it's too long to go into now, but if you take the trouble to read the letters of Shinshamar Purgo in the Ramchal controversy, you see a very wise and, and solid person. You know, let's make this go away. Let's not cause machlekes. Uh, that'll be worse than anything else. It's very similar in my mind to the attitude of the note of Yehuda in the Emden Abishas controversy, in which, you know, let's not air the dirty linen in public and let's not, uh, you know, make a big deal out of all this sort of thing. And, you know, all this Kabbalistic stuff is not good for the public because they hear it and they don't get it, and it just brings a, a chil Hashem. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's actually very, very interesting. And so this was uh, his role. Now, as I said before, he died rather young. If he was born in 1680 or so, he was like 59 when he died, uh, which is not old. And it seemed, like I said before, the way the son describes it, he like keeled over, 
Sounds to me like he had a heart attack or a stroke or something. I don't know. Uh, which means his health wasn't great. Uh, even though you're a doctor, that doesn't mean your health is good. But f- f- fortunately for him, his son was able to collect all of his tubes and publish them in this volume. Maybe I'm wrong. It was never republished. I don't know why. You understand? Know it's a Chashua collection. And it is quoted in the Pisgah Tuvas and places like that. Uh, you know, so the big Rabbanim knew about it. But it's the Yikar Hametzias. If not for the fact that Gideon got it, you know, you never see it. Although it is on Hebrew books. It is on Hebrew books. And um, I'm waiting till it should be published in nice print, normal, and all the rest of it. And uh, then people see a very mellow and, and, and normal type person. His Hebrew is wonderful. Uh, you know, uh, and he's very common sense. You know, you, you, you read his tubes, at least this is my impression. You read his tubes, you say, here's the voice of reason. They say, I repeat, he's a from guy, no question about it. He's a negla person. Let's, you know, pass him from Shas. Let's use, you know, the Shem. We have men hug him over there. We don't throw him out the window. You know, bring, don't bring in all this couple of stuff. If you want to bring in a couple of stuff and everybody agrees, fine. You know, don't cause trouble for anybody else. Uh, it seems to me, like I said before, like a, 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 a post-egg's post-egg. And, um, and therefore, as I said before, he's an Italian case of a Taramata. If you looked at him, you wouldn't think he was from. It's like somebody with, the, with, 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 the, uh, with a shaven uh, face in the 1700s. Although it's with a scissors, you know, of course. You understand? Uh, and he discusses, by the way, all the prati pratim of, you know, tar, misbrim, misbrim, cane tar, all the things that go into those kind of, uh, you know, questions. And, uh, you know, he, he clearly, he was the type of person who said, I'm the Rav here, I have to represent the Jewish community in front of the Galicia community, you have to get their respect. Um, you know, he was always very careful. The Jewish community he led always lived in the edge of a sword. You know, it's the Pope, they could come down on you at any time. Uh, I would throw in one more thing. He complained sometimes he doesn't have Sfarim. I told you before, he never shots. Uh, he never used me, he says. Now, I don't know how he got it. This reminds us of the Pinalitim of Azariah Figo, who was in Pisa and said, you know, I only had two Gemaras here and one Gemara there and one Gemara there. These are the very, very difficult circumstances in which our ancestors lived, the ones in, in places like under the real Catholic countries. They, they, the guy in Lenin has farm, which then makes his his uh, Chubas more impressive. Uh, now, uh, it's funny because he quotes a lot from the Achronim, so knows he did have and he, in general, you see, in my opinion, you see from his writings that, you know, he knew the Shalos and Shubas literature cold. He, I mean, he knows how to quote everybody. I don't know how, exactly how he got it. And maybe secretly, I mean this, you know, maybe he had to hide him under the under the, the floor. That's the type of life that these people lived. It's true that if you were in Ancona and people are coming all the time, maybe visitors brought you swarm, you know, like that. You know what I mean? From the Turkish side, Kenzine. And uh, and and I and it could be, but uh, he lived under diff- difficult circumstances, uh, and I'm hoping one day, and maybe not too long in the future, that this safer will be reprinted in nice, new, normal, modern print, and I think it'll get a lot of fans, at least among those that know. But meanwhile, with that, I'll wish you a um, chalamoid, you know, good moed, and I think I'm I'm shutting down for the week. <laughs> Take care.